Welcome to the Siskiyou Christian Fellowship Podcast. Our prayer is that the following verse-by-verse teaching of God's Word would bring you closer to Jesus. Right, so Romans chapter 3. You can get out your Bibles and turn there. We'll be finishing up Romans chapter 3 this morning. Maybe you guys saw on the news a couple days ago. Actually, I think it was yesterday or the day before. There in Florida, there was a a 10-year-old boy and 11-year-old girl, brother and sister, 10 and 11. And, you know, mom took away their cell phone. Said, no more cell phone for you guys. Too much screen time, that is it. And so they did what any normal 10 and 11-year-old would do. They stole their mom's car uh, in the middle of the night, and they set off for California. Wow. Wait, California, you guys haven't been reading the news, kiddos. You don't want to come to California. But these kids, they made it four hours on the interstate as they left southern Florida and headed for California. Four hours. You think, man, they would have gotten pulled over in the first 10 minutes, 10-year-old boy driving the car, but not so. And the only reason they got pulled over, it wasn't because he was driving on the sidewalk. It wasn't because he was, you know, running over cats and, you know, driving through hedges. No, he got pulled over on the interstate because the highway patrol saw the car And it was the description of a stolen vehicle. So can you imagine, as he's going up to make this, I mean, he's like, stolen car, this is going to be some thug, some gangbang or something, and there's a 10-year-old boy sitting there behind the seat. But in that moment, those kids were busted. I mean, that's it. They were toast. There was no story they could offer up. There's no excuse they could give. Man, they were painted into a corner, and they were totally guilty. That's it. I mean, you were caught red-handed. There's nothing you can do. Painted into that, and and that's exactly what Paul has been doing with us over the last few chapters of Romans as we've opened up this book. Paul has taken these first few chapters to really point us or paint us all into a corner, to show us all that we are without excuse, that we are all guilty as charged. And in chapter one, Paul begins with the heathen. Paul kind of breaks down all of humanity into three different groups. He begins with the heathen. He begins with the worldly individual who is really governed by their carnal nature, their lusts and their fleshly desires, who really, uh, there's lives, they're, they're filled with obvious sin. Boy, they lie and, and they cheat and they steal and they commit adultery and they commit murder. And Paul looks to this group of heathens and said, man, you guys are without excuse without excuse for not following God because the Lord has revealed himself to you. This excuse of unbelief whereby you think you can absolve yourself of any sort of obligation to God because you simply don't, I don't believe in God, therefore I don't have to answer to God. Paul says that's bankrupt. That doesn't work because God has revealed himself to us through his creation. That baseline, at the very bare minimum, We should acknowledge that there is a creator and we are the created and therefore we are in subjection to him. Paul says you're without excuse if you say that there is no God because creation declares that there's a God. Uh, Paul says to the heathen, he says, you can't plead uh, ignorance either. Well, I didn't know. I've never read through the Bible. Nobody has shared the law of Moses with me. I didn't know I was breaking the Ten Commandments. Paul says, listen, you're without excuse also, heathen, who says that you're just ignorant. Because God has written his law upon our hearts. 
We innately know right from wrong as human beings. In every culture around the world, in the deepest, darkest jungles, they know that adultery is wrong. They know that murder is wrong. They know that stealing is, how do we know this? Because God has put an internal moral compass in our hearts that he calls conscience. Right? So, so Paul, first of all, he begins with the heathen, the worldly individual, and says, man, you guys are without excuse. You know that God exists because you can see creation. You can't plead ignorance because God has written his, his law upon your heart. And Paul says, man, guilty. And, and I just imagine in my mind the gavel slamming down as the sentence is read. The, the penalty, the wages of, of sin is death. And guilty, death penalty. That's what you guys get. And then Paul moves from the heathen to the self-righteous, to the moralist, to the person that would say, man, I'm a pretty good person. You know, I go to church, I pay my taxes, I mow my neighbor's lawn. I'm a good guy, I think. Paul moves on to them, to the moralist, and says, you guys are also without excuse. Because you see, you judge others for sinning, but you yourselves are sinners, he says to the moralist. He says, just because you think you're a good person, you're guilty, you've lied, you have envied, you have lusted in your heart, you have hated others. You're guilty of all the exact same things that the heathen are guilty of. And Paul makes it very clear that it's not a matter of really if we sin. We all sin. It's a matter of fact that we sin. It's not a matter of the degree to which we sin. I only sinned a little. or I didn't sin a lot. It's not a matter of the frequency that we sin. It's a matter of fact that we do sin. And Paul says the wages of sin is that you're toast, moralist. You who think you are better. You who think that you're good enough. See, because God's standard is perfect. Right? To those who would say, well, I've never really, you know, lied. I, I, you know, I've kept the Ten Commandments. I've never cheated uh, on my wife or husband. I, I've never murdered anybody. Jesus said, if you lust after a woman, then you've committed adultery in your heart. If you've hated your brother without cause, you've committed murder in your heart. Perfection, that's God's standard. In thoughts and in deed, from the moment you're born to the time you're dead. That's God's standard. So, so Paul goes to the, the obvious sinner and says, man, you guys are guilty. Paul goes to the, the good person, the moralist, the self-righteous, and said, you guys are just as guilty. You judge others for the sins that you yourselves are committing. And then Paul, the third group he turns to is the Jew. These are the uber-religious people the most pious. They have the law and the temple. They're God's chosen people. And Paul says, man, you guys are guilty also. Why was the Jew guilty? They were guilty because they had put all of their faith and trust in external religious works, rites and rituals. The Jew believed that just because they were descendants of Abraham, that they were in, hey, we're going to heaven because we're descendants of Abraham. It's that simple. Because we have this external mark in our flesh, circumcision. Boy, we have heaven to look forward to, period. And Paul shows them how bankrupt that idea is. Religious rites and religious exercises, we might say from our perspective, we might lean on things like baptism or, uh, you know, being a church member. Uh, saying, well, you know, these are evidences that I'm a Christian. We talked about this. Paul really blows that idea out of the water that religious activity equals salvation. Religious activity is bankrupt unless it's a reflection 
of a changed heart. And, and that's what Paul gets out with the Jews. So, so everybody on the face of the planet is completely guilty. Uh, the verdict has been read, the gavel has been slammed down, the death penalty has been issued. And that really is what Paul's doing. He's painting us all into that corner. He's bringing us to that place where he says there in uh, chapter three, we're gonna finish it up this morning. He says that there is none righteous, no, not one. We looked at this on Wednesday night, how from head to toe, really humanity is guilty from the things that we say to the heart that is behind those things that we say, to the way that we think, to the things that we do, to the pride that exists in our hearts, we are all guilty according to the law of Moses. That, that, that Ten Commandments, we are all guilty according to the law of conscience. Because again, God's standard is perfection in thought and indeed from birth to death. That if you violated one of the laws, you're guilty of breaking them all. Say, man, that is harsh. That is so brutal. And Paul has taken a great deal of time in the opening chapters really to establish that, to paint us all into a corner. Why? So that every mouth may be stopped. This is what we kind of camped out on Wednesday night. That every mouth may be stopped. What does that mean? It means that we would not offer up excuses for our sins anymore. That when we come face to face with our shortcomings and our mistakes and our failures, that we can say, well, you know, it was difficult because of the family that I was raised in or the town that I grew up in or, or, or my disposition towards certain sins, my propensity to this or to that. that it, Paul has pointed all this out, our undeniable guilt, so that our mouths would be shut, so that we would come to the end of our excuses. And that's what we talked about on Wednesday night. Have our mouths been stopped? That's a good question. Have our mouths, have we come to that place where we're done making excuses? Have we come to the, the place where we're done trying to be good enough and to earn God's favor? Have we come to that place where we're, we're, we're done putting our trust in external religious activity? Are we ready to admit that we are sinners in need of a Savior? See, this whole thing of Romans, it's just a setup. It's a big setup. Paul is just setting us up and that very moment, we're like, oh, man, I'm toast. I'm done for. I'm guilty, and destruction is my destiny. And then he comes in, boy, with the greatest news of your life. Paul gives us the answer. He gives us the answer to our guilt. He shares with us the secret to salvation, and that is justification by faith. That's what we're going to talk about this morning, justification by faith. Now, Lots of theological ideas that we're going to talk about this morning. From justification, to redemption, to propitiation. And when these words start flying around, our tendency can be to completely check out like it's school. But these theological ideas, the truth of justification by faith, is so huge. And the ramifications for us so important that we grab a hold of this as Christians. We need to, okay, whew, we ready? And take a deep breath. Smack your, no, don't smack your neighbor, but let's all be, put our thinking caps on, to be committed to seeing this thing through so that we can understand what it is that God is saying to us this morning. And so let's look at this idea of justification by faith, this answer, the secret to salvation that Paul lays out for us, beginning in verse 21 of chapter 3 in the book of Romans. Verse 21 says, But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed being witnessed by the law and the prophets, 
even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace and through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So righteousness apart from the law is revealed. Uh, righteousness, a, 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 rightness, a rightness with God that has nothing to do with my performance, that has nothing to do with my ability to obey the law, external or internal. Uh, you're guilty of breaking the law. Uh, that is the bad news. The good news is that there is a righteousness apart from the law, a righteousness that's not earned through good behavior, but it's a righteousness that is given based on faith, that is a gift, that is a gift. And, and, and so righteousness apart from the law, this is the very beginning, this is Paul's beginning to kind of unpack this. Man, you're guilty of breaking the law. The, the, the sentence is death, but what I want you to know is there's a way out. There's a righteousness aside from the law. And Paul goes on to say that this righteousness apart from the law, that it's nothing new, that it was witnessed by the law and the prophets. What does it mean when we read in the scriptures the law and the prophets? Basically what it means is the entirety of the Old Testament. That's what they would call the Old Testament, the law and the prophets. So Paul is saying that, that this idea of righteousness aside, apart from the law, was witnessed by the law and the prophets, that, that this idea is nothing new. It's all throughout the scriptures. And we took some time on Wednesday night to talk about this. It's the scarlet thread. It's this picture of Jesus and what he's done from cover to cover, that men are sinners, that we are completely and utterly and totally lost. But Jesus, but Jesus, he died in our place. He redeemed us. He saved us. He set us free. And we see this idea of righteousness apart from the law throughout all of the Old Testament. And we unpack that from, from the Proto-Evangelium there in Genesis 3.15, the, the, the first mention of the gospel, to the plain language of Isaiah 53, to the illustrations that we find in the lives of Abraham, or in the story of the Exodus, or in the you know, character of, of Rahab or in the book of Jonah or in the Psalms. And if you are a person who's interested in like, man, I really want to see the pictures of Jesus in the Old Testament. Man, listen to Wednesday night's uh, teaching. We, we, we took some time and we went through it and we really just scratched the surface. You can dive into that and really it is a beautiful picture. But all of the scriptures, all the Old Testament, they point in one direction. They point to Jesus as being the one who satisfies uh, God's wrath, who, who, who redeems us. And that's what Paul is saying. And he says, man, you're guilty, but there's this righteousness aside from the law that's nothing new. It's all throughout the scriptures. Justification by faith. Again, this huge theological term that we're going to unpack this morning. It's super important that we understand. And so if we're going to understand justification by faith, a good place to start is what is justification? Right? So what does justification mean? And we're going to start with what justification doesn't mean. 
what justification isn't, is not. Justification is not a process. Justification is not a process. Justification is an act. There are no degrees of justification. There aren't some of us who are more justified than others. I'm not more justified today than I was yesterday. No, we are justified once and for all. Justification is not a process. Justification is an action. Justification, secondly, is not something that man can do. We are incapable of bringing about justification in our own lives. Only God can justify. Thirdly, justification does not make us righteous. Justification does not mean that God makes us righteous. Justification means that he declares us righteous. See, to be justified doesn't mean I'm just magically righteous. I I, I no longer have the need for sin. I no longer have a desire for sin. I'm no longer going to sin for the rest of my life. Wouldn't that be great? If when we got saved, just like all desire for sin just evaporated into thin air. Like, I'm perfect. The Lord made me perfect now. But that's not what he does. He does not make us righteous. He declares us to be righteous. See, justification is a legal term. Think back with me to Paul, bringing each group into the courthouse to, to lay out their guilt before them, that the gavel might fall, that they might be declared uh, undoubtedly guilty. Right? This is that same courtroom. And justification is a, a legal matter. It's where God takes the righteousness of Christ and puts it on our record and takes our record of sin and puts it and charges it towards Jesus' account. It, it, it's a legal term. It's as if I have never sinned at all. Isn't that amazing? And so the last thing that justification is not is justification, justification is not sanctification, right? Sanctification is where God takes us and he makes us more and more like his son, Jesus. He works things out of our lives that ought not be there. He works things into our lives that need to be there. Sanctification is a process, going back to point number one with what sanctification is not. Justification, pardon me, justification is not a process, Sanctification is a process. Uh, You know, some days I'm doing better than other days. But there's this general trend where I look back at my life and say, wow, Lord, you're so good. I'm not where I was. I'm not where I need to be, but I'm not where I was. So justification is not a process. It's not sanctification. Uh, It never changes. When a sinner puts his trust in Jesus... God declares him to be righteous once and for all. That's it. It's done. So justification is the act of God where he declares the believing sinner righteous in Christ on the basis of the finished work of Jesus on the cross. That's great. So wonderful. Again, my sin is charged to Jesus' account and Jesus' righteousness is charged to my account. How beautiful that is. But, but, but how does this work? How does it happen? And that's what we're going to look at this morning. Paul lays it out for us. How is it that this justification takes place in our lives? And first of all, he says in verse 21 that it happens outside of the law. Right? We talked about that. That justification, being in this place where, where God has, has made it just as though I've never sinned, it happens apart from the law. Apart from the law of Moses. The Ten Commandments. I was a, a part of uh, a men's group uh, when I was a young Christian at a church that I used to go to. 
And we got this idea, hey, let's memorize the Ten Commandments. Let's like walk out the Ten Commandments. This was kind of like our idea. And it was a very flawed idea. And I noticed that as we kind of pursued this thing of memorizing and trying to live by the Ten Commandments, one of two things happened to the guys in the group. Either they recognized their complete and utter failure and walked around in condemnation like God was mad at them all the time, or they became self-righteous religious hypocrites looking down their nose at everybody, thinking that they were keeping the law and busting all the chops of the guys who weren't keeping the law, right? So, so there's this uh, justification. It, it's apart from the law. It has nothing to do with whether or not we keep the law. We can't earn it by keeping the law of Moses. We can't earn it by keeping uh, a self-imposed law that we put upon ourselves. How many of you guys have ever been in that place where you're like, man, I'm never going to get angry again? Lord, I promise. That's it. That's it. I'm not going to lose my temper anymore. And as a matter of fact, I'm going to start doing daily devotions. Every morning, Lord, I'm going to get up at 5 a.m. and I'm going to read through an entire chapter of of the Word. And we put these self-imposed laws upon ourselves, right? Justification happens outside of self-imposed laws as well. Uh, Verse 20 says that there is no deed of the flesh that can be justified. It happens outside of law. Secondly, Justification comes through faith in Jesus. Through faith in Jesus. Ephesians 2, 8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, verse 9, not of works, lest anyone should boast. See, we are saved by grace through faith. What is faith? Faith is the act of believing. It's the act of trusting. It's to rest the weight of my life upon something. Pistis, pastuo in the Greek. It's more than an intellectual idea. The demons, James chapter 2, says they believe and they tremble. They believe in Jesus. See, it's more than just an intellectual belief in Jesus. It's a belief that leads us to action. Faith. Uh, Faith really is uh, trust in action. And, And there's all sorts of analogies that I've used, right, to kind of illustrate this. That we believe that a chair will hold us, and so we sit in that chair. As we place our weight on the chair, that's the act of faith. Whether it's the chair or walking out on the ice of a lake or getting onto a plane, as you rest the weight of your life upon something, that's pistis, that's pistuo, that's belief, trust, faith. When we just don't believe it intellectually, but our life reflects it. But here's the thing about faith. It's only as good as its object. See, there's many things that men put their faith in, put their trust in, put their hope in. Money. Money can only take you so far. Their power or position, again, can only take you so far. See, but the Bible tells us that we are to confess with our mouth and believe in our heart that Jesus, that he, he died, he was buried, and three days later, God rose him from the dead. And if we believe that, then we are saved. That's what we're to rest the weight of our life upon. So it's apart from the law, it's through faith in Jesus, and it's available to all. That's what Paul said. It, it, it's, it's for all. There. Uh, in verse 23, he says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Oh, no, right before that in 22. It says, To all and on all who believe. That this faith in Jesus Christ is available to, to anybody. Uh, there are none who are excluded from this saving faith in Jesus. None. And, and here's the thing. The world hates Christianity for its exclusivity. Boy, how can you say that Jesus is the only way to heaven? I didn't say it. Jesus said it. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
No man comes to the Father but by me. But they hate it. How can you say that you're the only one who's right? Again, God said it, not me. It is. It's exclusive. But it's available to anybody. To anybody. What does John 3.16 say? For God so loved the world, encompassing everybody, that whosoever, anybody, anybody would put their trust and faith in Jesus, would be saved. They'd have everlasting life. And the biggest racket that Satan has going on is when he comes along and whispers in our ear, you're not good enough. And you've taken it too far. You're too bad. God is disappointed. He's not going to forgive you for that. You better just keep that quiet. You should be ashamed of that. God can't forgive that. That's not true. That, that, that's not the case. Where sin abounds, the Bible says, grace abounds more. Where sin ab- There's no sin that is bigger than God's grace. I don't care where you've been. I don't care what you've done. God's grace is bigger. Which brings us to our next point. It's by grace. It's by grace that we are justified. Uh, God, in his mercy, did not give us what we deserve. Right? Mercy is not getting what we deserve. God, in his grace, gave us what we don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. It's the analogy I use all the time. And I'm, I'm booking down, you know, uh, Oregon, 100 miles an hour. It's 25 zone. May I just blow right by Jackson Street School, right through the stop sign. Whoop! I get lit up. And the cop comes to my window and says, hey, I should take you to jail, but I'm just going to let you off with a warning. Whoa, that's mercy. That's mercy. And that doesn't set right with us. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. It's an imperfect illustration. But that's mercy. But grace goes beyond mercy. Grace is giving us what we don't deserve. The police officer comes and says, hey, I'm letting you off the hook. I'm not going to take you to, to jail. But, but here's a $10,000 gift certificate to Chipotle. Chipotle for life, on me. Something you totally don't deserve. See, that's, that's grace. Grace is something we don't deserve. It's something we can't earn because it's a gift. You can't earn a gift. Undeserved, unearned, unmerited favor. And that's what Paul says. This is part of that process, that it's by grace. It's a free gift. It's a gift that's free to us, but it wasn't free to Jesus. See, justification by faith, boy, it came at a brutal price. Grace was not cheap for Jesus. We cannot even imagine the price that Jesus paid to redeem us. That's what Paul talks about, that, that, that Jesus paid this price to redeem us for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace, unearned, unmerited favor, that gift, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. What does it mean to be redeemed? Redeemed means that we were bought with a price to be purchased, but it's broader than that. What were we bought out of, and what was the price that was paid? And the story of Hosea in the Old Testament is an awesome illustration of what redemption looks like. See, Hosea was a man of God. He loved the Lord. He he walked with the Lord. He was a prophet of the Lord. And and God said, Hosea, I got a a girl for you. Uh, Her name is, is Gomer, and she's the town prostitute. And Hosea, he married Gomer even though she was a prostitute and she would continue to live that life, to prostitute herself and to sleep with other men even after 
They were married time and time and time again. And Hosea would take her back and take her back and take her back and came to this place when finally she was old and she was haggard and she was washed up and she had prostituted herself to the point to where no man wanted her. And so she was put up for auction in the slave market. And there came Hosea, the faithful husband. He comes to purchase his wife, to buy her from slavery, even though she had been a wretch and completely unfaithful. And God said to Israel, I am Hosea, and you are Gomer. And that's the story of it. God is Hosea. He's the faithful one. And we are the faithless one. And it's this foreshadowing of redemption, the price that Jesus would pay for the sins of the world. And there's a story that I've told before about a little boy who had a sailboat. Little boy, boy, he, he built this sailboat. It's a little kit, and, and he saved up, and he got this, and he, he put it together with his own hands, and he loved this thing. He would take it out, and he would float it down the creek by his house, and he would retrieve it with the string that was on it and float it down again. Well, one day, after a storm, the creek was swollen, and he took his little sailboat out to float it down the river, but the string broke, and the sailboat floated away, and try as he might, he couldn't get the sailboat back, and he was devastated. He was so bummed out, his precious sailboat. But then a couple days later, as he was making his way home from school, he walked by a secondhand store, and he saw there in the window his sailboat, and he went inside with great excitement and said, Mr., that's my sailboat. I lost it a couple days ago. That's mine. And the owner of the shop said, well, that may have been your sailboat, but it's mine now. And if you want it, you're going to have to buy it back. And the price is two bucks. And the little boy looked at him. He grinned, ran out, ran home, broke open his penny bank, grabbed his only two bucks, ran back to the store, gave it to the shop owner with great joy, grabbed his sailboat, took it outside and looked at it and said, you're mine twice. I made you and then I bought you. See, and that's what the Lord has done for us. He made us, then he bought us. You see, God, in the very beginning of creation, he desired a love relationship with us, with his creation. But because love cannot exist in a vacuum, love can exist outside of free will, he gave us a choice. We couldn't be automaton robots created to, I praise you, Lord. I love you, Lord. That's the only thing I can say. Is that, that wouldn't be true love. He desired a real relationship with us, and he gave us a choice, and we blew it. He made us. We sold ourselves to sin but God purchased us back. He, he, he paid the ultimate price to purchase us. And that price we can't even fathom was the price of his son, Jesus, who the Bible says made himself of no reputation, who came in the likeness of men. And not just as any man. Remember, Jesus didn't come as a ruling prince or king or wealthy entrepreneur or philanthropist driving his Lambo and flying his helicopter Jesus was born in a podunk town in the middle of nowhere to two teenage parents under the shadow of scandal. And he lived a perfect life. And he was betrayed. And he was tried unjustly. And he was beaten and he was bruised and he was mocked and he was crucified for us. That was the price that Jesus paid. That's what it means that we have been redeemed. Even though we are the gomer, even though we are the faithless, God gave everything to buy us back from our sinful situation, the grip that sin had on us. Next, this justification thing is done in perfect justice. Say, well, what do you mean? Justification is done in perfect justice. 
this idea that we are justified by faith, that, that, that somehow my record is completely expunged and it's just as though I've never sinned. Right? There's a problem there. Right? God just can't wink at sin. God just can't turn a blind eye to sin. And, well, you know, no big deal. We'll forgive you. And that's the problem that we have with the police officer analogy where I'm driving 100 miles an hour, where he just lets me off. It's a fictitious story. Understand, I never really drove 100 miles an hour anywhere. But we have a problem with that story because justice was not served. There's a crime committed. A punishment needs to be meted out. And see, that's what was done. That, that's this idea of propitiation that Paul talks about next. See, if God just let me off the hook, if God just let you off the hook, he wouldn't be just and he wouldn't be righteous because he let those sins just go unpunished. But he didn't turn a blind eye. He didn't sweep it under the rug. He paid the full price as our substitute. See, he was our substitute on the cross. And that's what propitiation means, our substitute. Propitiation literally means appeasement. It means that God's righteous anger that was rightfully directed at me and at you was appeased by the sacrifice that Jesus made for us on the cross. He was our substitute. That's what that means. And still we say, you know, I really don't like that. That still leaves us in this kind of place of dilemma. If you think about it, for what father would take his innocent son and sacrifice and punish him for the guilty world? As a dad... Like, there's part of that that I'm just like, oh, man, that doesn't sit well. How is that the right thing to do? To punish the innocent son for the guilty world. But here's the thing that we have to understand. Jesus knew what he was getting into. There in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before he was crucified, the Bible says he sweat great drops of blood. The pressure was so tremendous. He knew that he was going to face the cross. It was immense. And he said, he prayed, if there's any other way, let this cup of wrath pass from me, but there wasn't. And this is the part that we have to understand about this whole transaction that took place where Jesus died for us, that he did it willingly. He did it willingly. Nobody forced him. Nobody took his life. He says there in John 10, 18, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it up again. In Hebrews 12, he says, it was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross, despising the shame. It was for the joy set before Jesus that he endured the cross. What is that joy that was set before him? It was us. We are his joy. It's because he knew that he was going to redeem. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, even though we were the faithless, even though we were the Gomer. And there on the cross, when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God's wrath that I deserved was being poured out upon Jesus in that moment to satisfy God's wrath for me. Jesus cried out the last thing on the cross, it is finished. Te telestai. Another legal term, it means it is paid in full. Your debt is completely paid. You owed a debt that you could not pay, and Jesus paid a debt that he did not owe. That is propitiation, that he was our substitute, that God's wrath wasn't cast aside. God didn't wink at sin. He paid for it. Righteousness aside from the law, this thing that, that Paul is getting into this morning. Justification by faith. And I know it's a lot of big words and it's a lot of things, but stick with me because it's important. That we've been redeemed by the blood. 
that Jesus is the propitiation, our substitute, that our debt has been paid. And then we'll finish up these this last few verses and, and we'll bring it to a close. Verse 27 says, where is boasting then? It is excluded by what law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. And so a couple things that Paul establishes here, this idea that we're justified by faith, not for anything that we've done, but by trusting what Jesus has done. So what right do we have to boast? There's nothing that I can brag about. I can't look down my nose at somebody else for the condition that they're living their life in because I was in the same condition. I didn't save myself. God saved me. And therefore, we can't boast about anything. We have nothing to boast about. Jeremiah 9.23 says, Thus saith the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might. Nor let the rich man glory in his riches. But let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness and judgment and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, saith the Lord. What can we brag about? As Christians, we brag about the goodness of Jesus. And that is it. And in this last part, uh, Paul really uh, says that this whole idea of justification by faith doesn't negate the law, but it establishes law. You say, wait a second, I'm confused now. So this is righteousness aside from the law, but somehow justification by faith establishes the law? Like, what does that even mean? Well, what was the law given to us for? Why did God give us the law? Was it so that we could follow the law? That we might earn his favor? That's bankrupt. I challenge you to do it, just like me and the group of guys did. And you'll find one of two things. You'll either come to a place of condemnation because you will understand your total lack, or you will go into a place of self-righteousness where you will be a Pharisee and think that you're better than everybody else. You cannot, God did not give us the law that we might keep it thereby earning salvation. God gave us the law to show us our need for a Savior. Check this out in Galatians 3, starting in verse 21. It says, the law then, or pardon me, it says, is the law then against the promise of God? Or the law? Certainly not. For if there had been a law which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But the scripture has confined all under sin, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor or schoolmaster to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under the tutor, under the schoolmaster. See, the law was just given to us to show us our need for a savior. None of us are good enough. None of us can keep the rules. We're not justified by the law. We are justified by faith. Just as though we had never sinned. And the files of your dirty, dastardly deeds have been deleted. Your sin has been permanently removed as far as the east is from the west. Boy, it's been remembered no more. 
tied up into a bag and thrown into the depths of the sea. That's what the Bible says about our sin. And it's through faith, through trusting in the work of the cross, because of Jesus' grace, unmerited, undeserved, unearned favor. He's redeemed us. He's purchased us back. Uh, We owed a debt we couldn't pay, and he paid the debt that he didn't owe. He was our substitute, our propitiation. And so now what does that mean for us? So we've got it nailed down. Sweet, justification by faith. This transaction that takes place where he who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. What does that mean for us? It means that we can walk boldly in the things that God has for us now. That's the good news this morning. That's the great news. There's nothing standing between us and God. God is not mad at you. God is not down on you. He is not disappointed in you. You know why? Because anything that God could be down on you for, anything that God could be mad at you about, anything that God could be disappointed in you for, Jesus has already paid for. That has been transferred to Jesus' account, and Jesus' righteousness has been transferred to our account. So that means that we can just walk in freedom, that we can walk with the Lord. As I have studied through this, it has brought me such freedom. Uh, Paul says it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. It's not this feeling of obligation or condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But it's this idea that it's done, it's paid for. What's left for us to do? Walk in it. Rejoice. Enjoy the Lord. I've talked to people. I've said, man, you got to come to church, dude. Come. Enjoy. Come hang out. Come hear the word. Come worship God. Oh, man, you don't want me anywhere near your church. The building would collapse on me. Oh, man, I would come to church, but I'm telling you what, if I got near that church, God would strike me dead with a lightning bolt. It's not true. It's not so. The price has been paid. We can walk in the freedom and the joy of knowing that we have peace with God. And it's a peace that is not based on our merit. It's not my, based on my ability to follow the rules. It's based on Jesus' perfect sacrifice. The redemptive work of justification. Not justification by works, but justification by faith. It's beautiful. He's redeemed us. He saved us. He set us free. But here's the thing. Here's the kicker. Is that God is a perfect gentleman. And he won't redeem you unless you want to be redeemed. He will let you serve out your sentence if you want to. But you will have to do it by stepping over his dead body. See, he's done everything that he can to redeem us. He paid our price. All we have to do is be willing to what? Believe. Justification by faith. To confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus died and God rose him from the dead three days later. It's pretty straightforward. All, I say all the time, it's not some magic words that you can pray, but it's kind of a magical thing that takes place, really. I don't know how it works. And if you're here this morning and you have never been justified, you've never had your sins taken care of, if you're here this morning that transaction has not taken place in your life whereby Jesus has taken your sins and given you his righteousness, first of all, I say, what are you waiting for? It's a free gift. It's already done. Walk in the beauty and the joy and the fulfillment that that brings. And if you're in that place today and you want to do that, it really is that simple. Just pray to God and say, God, I know I'm a sinner. I know I need a Savior. 
I believe that you died on the cross in my place for my sins, but that you rose again three days later. Be my God. I'm surrendered to you. It really is that simple. And if that is you this morning, man, don't leave this place without being justified. So important. It really is so important. And so as we close up, Dave's going to come up and he's going he's to close us out in a, a few worship songs. We're going to come forward and we're going to take communion together. What a wonderful thing that is. That as we hold the, the cracker, we remember, Lord, you are is the propitiation. You redeemed us by your blood or by your, your, your blood, by your sacrifice, by what you've done. As we hold the cracker, we remember that we were the ones who were supposed to be nailed to the cross, that Jesus died in our place. He was our propitiation, that we were redeemed as we hold the blood. We take in the, the, the juice, the picture of his blood. Remember, Lord, and what a wonderful thing that we have been redeemed, that we've been justified just as though we have never sinned. And I pray that we would all, as we take in the elements, would take in those promises again. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. He wanted us to remember that the price is already paid. It's done. There's no more striving. There's no more working. They're simply following. And you know what I have found? Is that when I wrap my mind around that and I begin to walk in that, that's when I desire to walk with the Lord more than I ever have. It's not by my works. It's by the work that was done. And as we come, man, remember that. That you would walk out of this place walking boldly in all that the Lord has for you. But as all this is going on, right, as some of us may be praying, as some of us are coming to take communion as Dave is leading us out, and I want to make baptism available to you guys today. And we've talked about the the religious rites and activities and how they really are bankrupt. But they're only bankrupt if your heart is not changed. And if you are here this morning and you desire to have that changed heart, if you are one who says, man, I want to pray that prayer, I want my life to belong to Jesus today, then come up. Get baptized. Baptism is an external, uh, it's an external picture of an internal change. It's this expression you're saying, I want everybody to know and to have a visual of the change that has taken place in my heart. And when we're baptized, we go under the waters of baptism. We identify with Jesus' death on the cross. We recognize, Jesus, you died for me, and I'm dying to my carnal. I'm dying to all those things that hold me back and trip me up. But I'm dying. I don't want to walk after the flesh anymore. And as we come out of the waters of baptism, we identify with the resurrection we might walk in the newness of life. And here's the thing. It's really not a suggestion. The Bible doesn't suggest that we get baptized. Jesus commanded it. He said, go forth and make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so some of us maybe need to to give our lives to the Lord and get baptized this morning all in one shot. How rad would that be? But a lot of us, we get saved and we put off baptism for, for many different reasons. But I want you to know this morning that there's a great blessing in walking in obedience. And baptism is that thing as a believer where we say, Lord, I want all that you have for me. I'm all in. I want everything. I want to make that identification. I want to walk in obedience. So as we come to the table, as we remember what Jesus did for us, and remember that there's not a single one of us in this place that is worthy to come to the table. But that we come, not on our own merits, based on 
Jesus' merits is how we come. If you need to give your life, if you need to get saved today, man, come do that. If you need to get baptized, come do that. And so, Lord, we thank you again just for this reality, justification by faith. What a wonderful freeing truth it is, and I pray that we would walk in the freedom that that brings us this morning, Lord. I pray for those who are just wrestling things out, for those who just need to make that step and just put their faith, rest the weight of their lives upon what you've done. Lord, I pray that you would come alongside of them in the way that only you can and that you would save them this morning. I pray for those who are wrestling with the idea of baptism. Lord, that you would also direct their steps this morning as they walk in obedience and experience the blessing that comes with that. And for us, Lord, as we take in the, the cracker and the juice, that we would remember the reality that you died on the cross in our place. That it was your blood that was shed that, that justifies us freely, Lord. And as we take those things in, will we take that reality in afresh and walk in the freedom and joy that that brings us? We love you, Lord, and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this teaching of God's Word presented by Siskiyou Christian Fellowship. We pray it's blessed you and given you a greater understanding of the Bible. To learn more about us, visit siskiyouchristianfellowship.com. Thank you.